This is an ABC podcast. It's been more than six weeks since China first alerted the world to the coronavirus outbreak. Right now, there are more than 45,000 people with coronavirus around the world. The US makes up a quarter of the 1.1 million recorded infections from coronavirus. Brazil has emerged as Latin America's COVID-19 epicentre, with the ninth highest death toll in the world. Singapore was lauded for its response to coronavirus. Now it has returned to lockdown. In France, a dramatic increase in deaths as they account for people in nursing homes not previously recorded. The pandemic is far from over. I repeat, the pandemic is far from over. The outbreak of the coronavirus and the global shutdown that's followed is changing societies and economies in ways we could never have imagined. Hello, I'm Annabelle Quince and this is Rear Vision on Radio National. Human history has traditionally been understood through events like wars, economic change, technological development or great leaders. But what is frequently overlooked is the role that infectious disease, epidemics and pandemics have played. An epidemic occurs when an infectious disease spreads widely through a single community. A pandemic when it spreads across multiple regions, continents or worldwide. And their story goes right back to the time of the ancient Greeks and Romans. It was the first documented pandemic in history. In 430 BC, ancient Athens was at its peak under the leadership of Pericles when the illness ravaged the city. The outbreak weakened the Greek capital considerably, wiping out a third of its population. Historians say it marked the beginning of the decline of Athens. The plague of Athens occurred during the second year of the Peloponnesian War and arguably played a role in Athens' defeat by Sparta. Professor Joe Hayes is the author of The Burden of Disease, Epidemics and the Human Response in Western History. There has been a certain amount of discussion about how important that was in determining the course of Athenian history. Has it, for instance, contributed to the decline of Athens as a power that eventually manifested itself in the in the conclusion of the Peloponnesian War, when Athens is in effect defeated. So, what was the actual plague that hit Athens during that time? Do we know what the cause was? Well, that's there's been a lot of discussion about that over the years, and almost certainly was not what we call plague. I think the best argument has been made for smallpox. In Roman times, these insects were found all over Italy. Researchers from the University of Rome discovered traces of the Anopheles, a particularly vicious mosquito. It might have caused a severe malaria epidemic. Does this mean that the tiny mosquito was responsible for the demise of ancient Rome? Malaria was the great bane of Roman history. The microorganism that caused it is borne by mosquitoes. And mosquitoes love damp, low-lying terrains. The marshes that were common in Italy were wonderful places for malaria. What that meant was that different points in the Roman world, in some places what would result from a malaria attack would be a famine because food couldn't be grown anymore because the land was infested. So as those things developed, they had a serious effect on the population. 
meant that military efforts by the Romans could be compromised. And as military effects on the Romans could be compromised, so the ability of the government to maintain itself or, or to expand or to resist invasion may have been affected. In essence, malaria was the disease that almost put a check on how expansive the Roman Empire could actually be. Yes, I think that's correct. The most famous infectious disease was the bubonic plague, which ravaged Europe for centuries. The best known, the Black Death, the global pandemic that struck Europe and Asia in the mid-1300s. But bubonic plague was not unique. There were several other infectious diseases that reshaped human history. One of the most significant was smallpox especially after the arrival of Christopher Columbus in the Americas at the end of the 15th century. Professor Frank Snowden is the author of Epidemics and Society, From the Black Death to the Present. Columbus landed on the island Hispaniola and there there was a native population of Arawaks and there were a couple of million of them at the time of his arrival and within a generation the population had been reduced to 10,000 out of several million and this was exclusively due to the effect of smallpox. This has sometimes been called the Columbian Exchange. It involves the transfer of a series of diseases, most of them apparently new to what we call the virgin soil of the Americas, smallpox, measles, plague. And the numbers here are just staggering. There is a lot of argument about what the population in, say, 1,500 of the Americas was. Some people have said it might have been as much as 100 million. Others say, no, it's probably only more like 10. But what is certainly true is that by the end of the century, by 1600, if the population of the Americas was 100 million, it was now 10 million. And if the population was 10 million, it was now 1 million. That is to say, the combination of these different diseases probably resulted in the loss of 90% of the population of the Americas. Columbus, for example, imagined that he was going to subjugate the Arawaks and reduce them to slavery, but this proved impossible because they died. And so what happened instead was that Europeans quickly began to import in ever larger numbers uh, people from Africa. This is the rise of the African slave trade because Africans possessed many of the same disease history that Europeans had. They possessed herd immunity and they were suitable for being enslaved. So this new world slavery is also a legacy of this lack of immunity or possessing immunity was a decisive factor in the whole history of the settlement of the Americas and also Australia and New Zealand. Smallpox also played a critical role in the American Revolutionary War. Washington's army soon faces an enemy far more lethal than the British. Smallpox. The revolution breaks out during the worst smallpox epidemic in US history. 
a deadly airborne virus spreads through the British prison ships. Isolated from the disease for generations, the American colonists have little resistance to it. Professor Elizabeth Fenn, author of Pox Americana, The Great Smallpox Epidemic of 1775-82. Boston, or Massachusetts more generally, and Virginia were the two sort of axis of the American Revolution. And so it's not surprising that smallpox erupted first in this kind of revolutionary ferment in Boston. Most people think the war began in 1776. It did not. It began in 1775 with something called the Siege of Boston. In the aftermath of Lexington and Concord, American troops surrounded Boston and kept the British besieged there. And interestingly, the Americans were much more vulnerable to smallpox than the British were. The reason for that is that smallpox was endemic in Europe by this time. So most people born and raised in Europe or in England would have acquired immunity. Now smallpox was not endemic in the Americas and that meant that any American born and raised in the Americas, that doesn't matter whether that person is African American, Native American, European American, any native born American was not likely to have encountered smallpox earlier in life. And as a consequence, George Washington's Continental Army was much more vulnerable to the disease than the British Army was. So when smallpox broke out, that siege of Boston, how did the American army respond? George Washington took command of the Continental troops in the summer of 1775. He had actually had smallpox as a young man, so he was acutely aware of how this illness could affect his army. His very first orders was that any soldier in the Continental forces who showed the least signs of smallpox, would be immediately quarantined. I mean, he had deep respect for this disease. And that was pretty much his strategy until later in the war, was to quarantine people who showed signs of smallpox. And did that work to to a large extent? It worked at Boston until the British departed in the spring of 1776. And then everybody kind of rushed back into Boston, all excited, like people going out of their houses once uh, shelter-in-place restrictions are lifted. And once people rushed back into Boston, the illness circulated with some ferocity through the summer of 1776. But at the same time that that siege of Boston was going on, during the winter of 1775-1776, there was actually another campaign going on. It was an American attempt to bring a 14th colony into the American Revolution. And that 14th colony was Quebec, which was in British hands at this time. So American troops marched to Quebec. They began besieging the city of Quebec in the same winter that troops were also besieging Boston. And Smallpox erupted among the American forces, and it was catastrophic. Reinforcements would arrive, 
and they too were vulnerable to smallpox, so they would just kind of add fuel to the fire. And eventually, in the spring of 1776, the American forces had to withdraw from Quebec. Once smallpox arrives at Valley Forge, it spreads through the cramped huts like wildfire. Washington survived smallpox as a child. Now he decides to take a gamble, one of the most daring experiments in U.S. military history. He witnessed the devastation that smallpox caused in the Continental Forces, the American forces during the siege of Quebec. He also became aware that troops were being infected with smallpox as they traveled to join the army, as recruits, especially from southern colonies were traveling to join the army. So in the famous Valley Forge winter of 1778, he decided to variolate. The term they actually used at the time was inoculate his troops. Variolation refers to using smallpox virus to actually create a mild smallpox infection that will confer immunity. It was a highly dangerous procedure. It had something like a 5% case fatality rate, if you can imagine that. And the recipient would usually survive and have immunity for life. And what impact do you think that had on the American War of Independence? And if he hadn't done it, could American history, in terms of its relationship with Britain, have been different? Well, it pretty much meant that Washington did not have to worry about smallpox anymore. And in fact, the tables turned as the American Revolution moved into the South. It became the British who had to worry about smallpox. And the reason for that was the British executed on that, that old saying about my enemy's enemy is my friend. And they promised liberation to enslaved African-Americans who belonged to what they termed rebels if they would come and fight and work for the British side. So African-Americans fled by the thousands to the British. And African-Americans were like other Americans. Very few of them had immunity. So they contracted smallpox even as they labored for the British. So ironically, it became much more of a British problem than an American problem. This is Rear Vision. I'm Annabelle Quince, and we're looking at the impact infectious disease has had on human history. It wasn't just the British whose colonial plans were stopped by infectious disease. Napoleon Bonaparte lost control of the Caribbean island of Saint-Domingue, now Haiti, because of an epidemic. In 1789, the year the French Revolution began, the French colony was the richest colony in the world. Its wealth created by the labour of half a million black slaves, producing sugar, indigo, cotton, cocoa, coffee and tobacco. In August 1791, those slaves began an uprising to overthrow the French. I am Toussaint Louverture. My name is perhaps known to you. He was called the Black George Washington. He fought off three empires and enraged Napoleon. The prospect of a Black Republic 
is equally disturbing to the Spanish, the English, and the Americans. He championed liberty and equality for all to say l'ouverture and the Haitian Revolution. In the period of the French Revolution, we see the neutralization of French power and the coming about of the biggest slave rebellion in human history, and that was the slave rebellion led by Toussaint Louverture. And Napoleon had come to power, and he wished to crush the slaves' new freedom and restore slavery to Saint-Domingue, he sent to carry out this mission his brother-in-law to command a huge armada, something like 50,000 soldiers and sailors were sent to Saint-Domingue to crush the rebellion. And what we see there is this issue of differential immunity, because the European soldiers had no herd immunity to yellow fever, whereas these slaves, they had herd immunity to yellow fever. So what happened by the summer was that the French commander wrote back to Paris, distraught that 80% of his soldiers had died of this single cause of yellow fever, and the other 20% was convalescent and therefore useless for military activity, and therefore it was impossible, he said, for him to continue. And so Napoleon accepted this defeat, withdrew the attempt to restore slavery, and so we have the beginning of decolonization. In addition, Napoleon realized that he didn't have a base for his ambitions in North America. And so he sold to Thomas Jefferson, Louisiana. This was the Louisiana Purchase of 1803 that doubled the size of the United States. So we see yellow fever playing a huge geopolitical role in reorienting the balance of power among the great powers of the period. And we see the emergence of the United States as a very significant regional power to eventually becoming a global power. While infectious disease tended to affect everyone in society, rich or poor, there was one disease that appeared to affect only the poor, cholera. It was the grim reaper of the 19th century, but there was little concern when cholera first appeared in France. The upper echelons of society believed it only infected the poor, the dirty and the uneducated. There were a series of cholera pandemics in, in the 19th century. Now, the first one started in about 1819, and then there was a serious one in the 1830s. And those cholera epidemics could illustrate your point, I think, pretty well. When cholera reached Paris in 1832, it was concentrated in the poor quarters of Paris. So the ruling classes of France took real fright because... They associated the disorders that cholera came in poor quarters with their memories of the French Revolution. And so they very much stigmatized the poor, attacked them, took this seriously. The symptoms of cholera include intense diarrhea and vomiting. The dehydration is so bad that within two days you begin to look like a corpse. 
a major factor was that cholera was entirely adapted to the period of the Industrial Revolution, that is to say, a period of sudden mass urbanization and with the rise of industry and the overwhelming of the urban infrastructure of sanitation, overcrowded housing, terrible hygienic practices, the absence of sewer systems, the absence of clean water, and therefore the possibility of the contamination of food and water by the germs carried in human excrement of that contaminated water supplies and food. And therefore, this was a typhoid and cholera were spread by the oral fecal route, and they were therefore quintessential diseases of poverty and of poor sanitation in a way that a disease transmitted, let us say, sexually like syphilis or a disease that's a pulmonary disease, such as the Spanish influenza, didn't target preferentially the poor. Cholera, therefore, gave rise to enormous social tensions because it was clearly a class disease that people in the slums of Naples or of Paris or of London could see that with their own eyes, the people who were middle class in their midst seemed to have this strange immunity. Doctors, priests, the officials of local government, although they came into the slums to try to control the disease, they didn't fall victim to it. It was only the poor who seemed to suffer. Now, that's because doctors and priests and officials didn't actually move into the tenements. They didn't take their meals there. They didn't drink the water there. And for that's the reason, epidemiologically, for this mysterious feature that they never seemed to fall ill. But the people who did fall ill did not understand that. And they thought maybe this was a crime, an attempt to rid cities of their problems of poverty and other social problems. And so one sees riots in times of cholera and enormous tensions, and it's reciprocated, on the other hand, by the wealthier classes thought that the 19th century, the time when cholera raged, that this was a disease that was purely a working class disease, and they were dangerous politically, the working classes, through riot and revolution already in the century, and now they were medically dangerous as well. And I believe that this is a feature, not the cause, but a feature also in the violence of the repression of social uprisings in the 19th century, where one sees let us say above all, in the most rebellious city in Europe at the time, Paris, the brutal repression that followed the 1848-9 revolution in Paris, the way it was put down, exceeded the victory and went into much more violence. And this was true as well after the Paris Commune, which was extraordinarily repressive, violent, and bloody, 
And one sees then this aggression, this tension between classes that was greatly sharpened by the passage of Asiatic cholera and the fears and resentments and blaming on both sides of the barricades. So yes, cholera was a disease of the Industrial Revolution that thrived on social tension and helped also to create it. The 1919 Spanish flu was the main pandemic of the 20th century. And there was a moment in the 1960s and 70s when we thought infectious diseases were a thing of the past. But we now know, like our ancestors, we are today as vulnerable, if not more vulnerable, to infectious disease. In France, a dramatic increase in deaths as they account for people in nursing homes not previously recorded. Along with Italy, Spain and the UK, the four countries account for more than half of the 59,000 deaths globally. The population of the world has become more urban. It is more likely to be affected by diseases that spread through crowds easily. Those may be airborne diseases, they may be waterborne diseases. Our society is now more mobile. As we move around, microorganisms move around too, and the speed of our mobility, we put three or 400 people in a hermetically sealed metal tube, and we shoot them up in the air, and we move them anywhere in the world within 24 hours. So that makes transportation dangerous in a way. Another thing that I think has gone wrong is that population has aged, and we are more vulnerable. I think also we continue to rely on what are ultimately political choices, where if we're going to combat a disease, we have to decide what is worth spending money on, how and when we're going to spend it. And all of those things have made the modern world, I think, more complicated than it was. When you look today, do you think there's probably a a whole lot of consequences that we we can't even see yet, but that history tells us must be there or must be coming? I do think so. The kinds of effects that we will only recognize in retrospect. So there are inevitably consequences. I do not know what they will be. But I can tell you this, as horrific as it is, it's a magical time to be a historian of infectious disease. It does look as though it's very likely that our world will never be the same. Quite likely, the disease will be lasting and endemic and we'll have to live with it for a long time. I'm not talking about the apocalypse. I'm talking about living together with a dangerous pathogen that has been introduced newly and that we don't seem to have a clear way of eradicating. And so our cities are likely to be altered. Milan, as we speak, is trying to devise ways of transforming itself into a city in which it's possible to coexist without being devastated, broadening sidewalks so people can practice social distancing to create bicycle paths so that people will not depend on crowded transportation system by the subway network. All of those are new ways of imagining how we live, 
where work will be transformed. People will do much more distance work. Their learning will be different. The entertainment world will be different. And probably there won't be these huge gatherings for watching sporting events or theater or the opera in the same way. I suspect also that people will learn the lesson at last that our healthcare system in places in the impoverished world and in the United States have to be built in such a way that healthcare is available to everyone because that's part of the story of this spread of coronavirus are so many people not having access to healthcare and that paralyzes public health because the disease is flourishing without the authorities knowing about it. So I think we're going to be transformed economically. This will have repercussions for religions and how people worship, if not in large congregations. Little things such as handshaking are likely to go. And I think we're going to be fundamentally transformed as a result of this. Frank Snowden, author of Epidemics and Society. My other guests, Joe Hayes, author of The Burdens of Disease, and Elizabeth Fenn, author of Pox Americana. The sound engineer is Simon Branthwaite. I'm Annabelle Quince, and this is Rear Vision on Radio National. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.